the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh, yeah, where's that? The toppermost of the poppermost. Hello, welcome to July of 1963. We are coming to you from the eyes of the storm, as Paul McCartney wrote in his most recent book. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. And just a little bit of self-promotion here before we get going. When They Was Fab has recently flipped the page, and Martin has now joined us as one of the periodic co-hosts. Don't everybody applause at the same time. There is a a fly to get in there. (laughs) We've had so many co-hosts over the years, although... Whoever you are, there's somebody for you. We just got a message that I hate to hear that John will be on less. And well, there was that review. It's like, well, Lonnie's gone now. So now they're all back. So which one of us is Steve Holly? Is there going to be like the quiet one, the serious one, the funny one, you know, like that? Martin is definitely the quiet one. We've already established that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But nobody else notices except for you. Oh. All right, so before we get into our topic this week, we just want to talk very briefly about Paul McCartney's book, Eyes of the Storm. It is a lot of really great pictures and really related to this show. We see how Paul and the other Beatles reacted to the musicians around them. It's a real treat to see a number of artists that we've talked about on this show interacting with them uh, backstage, some of them on stage. You know, Paul taking photos of them just off stage. A number of artists I practically out loud when I turned the page and saw it. I'm like, the Vernon's girls! Yeah, <laughs> yeah they are! Definitely fun, yeah. So many pictures of Billy J. Apparently, Paul had not bothered to tell Billy J., one of his friends had bought the book and was going through it. And it's like, oh, there's some pictures of Billy J. And he went and took pictures of the pictures and sent it to Billy J. And Billy J. turned around and said, oh, well, thank you, Paul. And he wrote Paul a nice note, apparently. Oh, dear. So he didn't know. Mm. Paul could have sent him a book. Yeah. <laughs> Royalties for Billy. Yes. <laughs> and they're nice shots, too. And then there's the other story, which you're going to hear a lot because it it comes up a lot. There were some studio musicians playing and Paul has a shot of what looked like some country or country-ish studio musicians. And he didn't know who they were and he never bothered to find out. (laughs) Okay. So the pictures come up, you know, the book comes out, Elvis Costello is going through it and he's talking to one of his friends and it's like, do you know anything about this picture? And it's like, that's my dad. Oh my God. One of the guys who played with Elvis Costello, there's his dad, and Paul never knew who this guy was. What? Small world. And so Elvis uh, sent Paul a text. Oh, I can identify this guy now. (laughs) Wait for the reprint with all of these people's names attached. Oh, just crazy. But yeah, there's some terrific shots of Clarence Frogman Henry backstage, the Exciters, just so many artists that we've talked about. Ronnie Spector. 
a really great shot of Ronnie Spector. Yes. You know, we, of course, expected so many shots of the Beatles, but to see candid photos of so many of the uh, acts that we've talked about on here on tour with the Beatles, what a surprise. I don't want Phil Spector to come out of his grave and chase me, but you're never going to get a bad picture of Ronnie Spector, really, are you? (laughs) This is true. Considering that Paris is one of the cities, we are going to be talking about one of the acts which is pictured, well, he's not pictured, but his band is pictured and that shows up in all of the Paris photographs. Yes, indeed. And, And on the marquee. Of the uh, theater. But we'll get to that when we get to that later in the show. And we'll be talking about the debut on the charts of, I would say, a very important band. I'm going to say something which some people might not like. I'm going to say that the Beatles were Mozart and the Stones were Salieri. Ooh. Oh, boy. That's not meant as an insult. Salieri was a very talented musician, but he wasn't Mozart. Mm-hmm. Where's the email address that people can send in viewer mail? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Expect a lot of apologies to fans this episode, I think. Yes, some other artists as well. Yeah. And the other thing is, if you really look into Mozart and Salieri, they weren't these big rivals. Uh, well, again, kind of like the Beatles and the Stones. Salieri may have been a little bit jealous, but don't tell me that Mick's not a little bit jealous of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, probably. Although I've often thought the people that compare them years ago, I reviewed a book that was, you know, the Beatles versus the Stones. And I've, I've always felt in a way it's kind of silly to compare, you know, who's better because to me, they're very different bands. Their sounds are very different. And the Stones are much more R&B. And the Beatles, they didn't play Muddy Waters. They were not that kind of band. I mean, whereas the Rolling Stones really you know, were so heavily influenced by Chicago blues and, and all that. So to me, it's comparing apples and oranges. Eh, oranges and grapefruits. The overlap between them is Chuck Berry and kind of the 50s blues things and Motown. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, both bands yeah. were, were heavily into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had some of the same influences, no doubt about it. But in other ways, they sounded very different. Until they didn't. Mick Jagger was asked if he thought the Rolling Stones were better than the Beatles. I don't know. How do you compare with the Beatles? <laughs> I don't compare it at all. You know, there's no point. Well, let's get right down to brass tacks. Do you think you're better than they are? But what? You know, it's, it's, it's not the same group, so we just do what we want and they do what they want, and there's no point in going on and comparing it. So you can prefer us to them or them to us. Mm. It's just diplomatic, you see. Very diplomatic, and I don't want to labour it, but do you feel you do what you want to do better than they do what they want to do? Uh, yes. Probably. I don't know. I don't know what they want to do, you see. Very diplomatic. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. By the time of satisfaction, by the time that Mick and Keith really started writing, you could very definitely see the Beatles' influence creeping in mm-hmm. without even mentioning Satanic Majesty's request. Mm-hmm. You could never convince me that that was not, oh, the Beatles did it, we can do it. They did yeah. it, just not very well. Yeah, that's the most obvious example of, of them trying to emulate the Beatles. That's very true. Only get that album if you've got all the other ones first. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the Stones beyond just our general thoughts on them. The Beatles revealed a new world. And that was a new world, man, but they were so good. That it wasn't like, oh, I want to do that, you know. Six months later, here comes the Rolling Stones. And the harmony, you know, they didn't have the harmony that was perfect. 
You know, the hair wasn't perfect, except for Brian Jones. Uh, the clothes were different. <laughs> and it was like, you know, those Beatles, I, I, I probably can't do that. But these guys, maybe I could, <laughs> you know? It, kinda, it made it look accessible. You know, they made it look easier than it was, you know? They were the first punks, really. It is a little bit surprising that the Stones were less than a year old at this point. They played their first show, and interesting that they were billed as the Rollin' Stones. <laughs> No G on uh, July 12th, 1962 at the Marquee Club in London, very hot club. But at this point, Charlie Watts had not joined the group. It was Brian Jones, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and it was Dick Taylor. Bill Wyman replaced Dick Taylor. Charlie Watts joined the group in January of 63. Then by February, he became the permanent drummer. So that's when the Stones lineup we all know was formed. So yeah, that lineup was fairly new by the time of July. It's interesting in that it's kind of analogous to Ringo joined and then they went to the recording studio just shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. Both Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts joined end of 62, beginning of 63. And by May or June, there they were mm -hmm. in the recording studio. That's pretty fast. Just about three and a half years ago, shortly after I started managing the Beatles, um, I invited a young man to help me to publicize the boys in England. He was uh, already making a name for himself as a publicist, um, and he worked with us for about six months. After that time, he, he left us because he wanted to freelance, and um, he became quite a famous man in this country. And among other things that he does, he is in fact the manager of the Rolling Stones. And uh, it gives me very great pleasure to introduce Andrew Oldham. Andrew, uh, one of the things that has uh, really crossed my mind uh, about your tremendous success has been um, the fact that when you were with us, uh, I didn't know that you had any inkling for producing records. Now, you do, in fact, produce the Rolling Stones records, yes, don't I you? Do. Well, how, how is it that in this short time, you know, you've made um, sort of such headway in producing records on such a professional level? Um, well, it was sheer chance. Um, when Eric Easton and I started with the Rolling Stones, we decided to produce their records mm. outside and take them to the company. Mm. Uh, none of us had any idea. Um, about making records, but we went in and made it, and I discovered slowly that I did have a flair for it, and it was what I wanted to do. Mm. I, th it's so, it's, I should think it's something about having rhythm inside you. Um, well, it's really rather like painting. It's like doing paintings, you know, sort of sound as colour. Mm. You just build it up that way. Mm. Um, you manage the uh, Rolling Stones and also the Poets. The poets. Yeah. And you also produce your own records, too. Mm. Um, do you want to go into management further and manage more groups? Um, no, I, I never handle the administration side of management. It's a little, it doesn't suit my temperament. It's always left to somebody else. I think it suits um, mine either, actually. <laughs> but um, records, making records is the thing I really want to do. Yes. And it's also been said that you want to, um, you, you prefer to produce records in America rather than England. Is this true? Um, no, I prefer to produce records for America, as I, I feel you can make a more varied style of record and have more chance of succeeding with it. But I would rather make the records here mm. for that. Great to see you doing well. And thank you, thank you very much indeed for coming down to the program. All the best. Thank you Produce many of good records. Andrew Oldham became their manager in April 
1963. We all know of the uh, major influence that he would have uh, on them. And I think it was when he saw them performing at uh, the Crawdaddy Club in uh, April 1963. And so he instantly saw them and said, oh, I've got to sign this group. We cannot forget that Andrew Lou Goldham came out of NEMS. I mean, he worked for Brian and the Beatles for a period of time in 62. Well, wasn't he with the members of the Beatles at that Crawdaddy gig with Andrew? I don't believe it was that Crawdaddy gig, but it was a Crawdaddy gig. Okay. I think that was a little bit later. Yeah, because I know there's that story about the Beatles being at a Crawdaddy gig yeah. that, that Bill Wyman mentions. They were performing that uh, Bill Wyman spotted the Beatles standing in the audience. And yeah, I'm not sure if that's the same one. The show where the Beatles showed up, that was like mid-April. That was the 14th or so. The first time we saw the Stones, we were doing a TV show uh, called Thank Your Lucky Stars, which is really good if you were trying to sell records at that time. It's the biggest sort of pop show in England. And we had a press guy called Andrew Oldham, who also was, in a way, managing the Stones. And we did the show in Birmingham, which is 200 miles from London. And we got in the car after the show and we drove to London and he said, why don't you come and see this band? And they were playing in some pub. So we went over and uh, we really enjoyed it and we all said hello. And from then on, we sort of kept saying hello. I think George was at a party, as I remember it, and uh, a man from Decca there was saying, you know, uh, do you know any groups? They were always asking us that because we'd been successful. And they figured, well, you know, if you like them, maybe we can pick them up. So they're always asking our A&R people. Heard of any good acts? And George said, yeah, there's this group we've seen down at the uh, Station Hotel in Richmond. It's really good, called the Rolling Stones. But, I mean, the, the way I've always heard that story told was that the Beatles were out in London and ran into Andrew Lou Goldham, and, and he just kind of said, I'm managing this new group. You guys got to come and see them. As Bill Wyman remembered, uh, after the Stones finished their set, they chatted and had beers, and the Beatles stayed for the second set. And afterward, they went back to, at the time, Mick Keith and, and Brian Jones lived in a flat in Chelsea, and they spent all night playing blues music and just talked and, I guess, really became good friends that night. Wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall? Especially because it, it seems to have been George Harrison that was particularly besotted by the early Stones. Mm-hmm. As the story goes, although we don't 100% know the accuracy of it, George was talking to the guys at DECA, and it's like, oh, we're so sorry that that we went the wrong way on you guys. Do you have any other recommendations? And George said, well, there's this band we just saw called the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And of course, as we all know, John and Paul would end up giving them what became their second single, I Want to Be Your Man. And, of course, there's been this dumb thing over the years that supposedly they had this huge rivalry. You know, they were pitted against each other, and it was silly. I mean, they didn't hate each other or anything like that. Keith Richards later said that that whole supposed rivalry came from Oldham trying to create a separation between the two to distinguish the Stones from the Beatles to give them a separate image. So, you know, the bad boy group. Well, I mean, I, I love Paul's reminiscence of it. Mick used to come around to my house a lot and just hang out there and I'd play him records. I remember once being in, I think it was Birmingham, and this police guy, because we were always in and out of police vans, you know, because of the fans. We were always being dressed in copper's helmets and um, stuck in police vans. I remember this fellow saying, oh, those Rolling Stones, he said, they're dirty. They're a filthy group, they are. 
And I said, well, we know him, like, you know, we go to the clubs and he said, I never seemed dirty to me. Mick always seemed very fashionably dressed, you know. May not have been what this fella liked, but Mick was very debonair, still is. And, uh, so I said, well, what do you mean, you know? And this police inspector, he said, that Mick Jagger, he said he wore the same T-shirt on stage as I'd seen him wearing in the afternoon. <laughs> and this was the height of filth, you know, I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> How dare he? What a rebel. <laughs> I, too, am a rebel. I've done that many times. Oh, you're out of control, Martin. <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, that's the sort of thing that John kind of complained about with Brian. Making them dress in the suits and, you know, be professional. So that's probably why Oldman wanted the Stones to be the opposite, to be the, the bad boys. Now, the, the single that we'll see when we get to the end of the British charts was a, a cover of a Chuck Berry tune. Yes, and this was really fascinating. You know, you tend to think, you know, why would the Stones do this? Well, at the time, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards weren't writing original songs. You know, they were doing cover songs. So they really picked out a song from their record collections. And it was a Chuck Berry B-side that they decided to cover. Seems kind of like an unlikely song to be the debut single from the Stones, but that was the kind of material they were doing at the time. It was covers. They were very aware that they didn't write songs. And so when John and Paul came in, it's like, well, you got any material for us? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Paul said, well, we got half a song. That was I Want to Be Your Man. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, well... Can you give it to us? And it's like, okay, let's go finish it. That was apparently a big deal to Mick and Keith was that John and Paul just went off in the back and it's like, okay, here's what the middle eight's going to be. Here's this extra chorus. Okay, we're done. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, and they did it right in front of us. Yeah, and now you can understand why it was such a big deal because they weren't writing their own material at the time. But obviously they were uh, fast learners. Well, it still looked, took them a little while to actually really get into their own material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, guess so. Time was just squeezed into this little bottle, not only for the Beatles, but for everybody. So if it took them six months or a year to really start writing, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It both was and wasn't a long time. For, I truly thought you were going to go there and say time was on their side. I uh, really did. I really <laughs> did. I am not Lonnie Pena who makes those sort of jokes. <laughs> Unfortunately, Ed had to put up with both me and Lonnie doing that. Remember we called it. Oh, that's funny. They recorded Come On, which was the Chuck Berry B-side, and they refused to play it live. Yeah, that's pretty cheeky, you know, for a brand new band to refuse to play their brand new single (laughs) live. And I guess Oldham was pretty annoyed with them, to say the least, and would keep saying to them, you've got to play your new single. But they apparently really didn't like it. I don't like all these historical moments too much, but like someone told me that tomorrow was the release of our... Stone's very first single, which is called Come On, which is released 50 years ago tomorrow. So Keith's looking at me like I'm expecting him to remember the intro. (laughs) But I can't really remember much about it, uh, but it goes something like, Come on, I want to see you, baby, come on. I don't mean maybe, come on. I'm trying to make you see that I belong to you, honey, and you belong to me. Come on, 
the sea. Charlie remembered a bit of it. That was the beach. Golden went to see the band at the Scene Club in Soho and and was furious that they wouldn't play it and insisted they play it at every show and uh, didn't last long. <laughs> Although Andrew Lug Oldham learned something from Brian, he went and told the fan club members, buy the single. He put mm-hmm. it in, in every announcement to the fan club, and, and the girls went out and bought the single. Well, so. not just that. He was getting them to buy them from the stores that were actually sending the numbers into the chart compilers, so that they'd purposely get onto the charts. Boy, that's smart. Yeah. He had learned from Brian, and the other place he had worked, which we didn't mention, was he worked for the Mary Quant folks. Oh, Mary Quant, right. Yeah, Mary Quant, the fashion designer who we can thank for the miniskirt. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Stones, and that was them coming onto the chart. It was a television appearance which would really make their single be noticed and move it out with the general public beyond just their fan club. And that was really what would put it on the charts during this month. Which appearance? The Stones appeared on a a Thank You Lucky Stars uh, summer special, and they played this song, probably against their own wishes. Yeah, they were a bit nervous, but it got them the exposure they needed. That would then get the song into the charts, as we will see once we hit the end of the month. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so as we move on to the British charts, you know, there's a lot of songs which just sort of held over into this month. There's not a whole, whole lot of new songs. There are a couple which we will mention, but a lot of it is just stuff that we've kind of already talked about. Yeah, a number of repeats, but there are some uh, very intriguing uh, records, though, that, that definitely are worth a mention. Yeah. For the 4th of July, 1963, at number one was Jerry and the Pacemakers with I Like It. Conan O'Brien, in his uh, podcast with Paul, makes a point of mentioning Jerry in the Pacemakers, and and Paul has a good little chuckle over that. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I was kind of surprised there were no uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers pictures in there. Well, I mean, you know, this is a little bit later in the year. I don't think they were ever together from December 63 to February 64. I guess that's true. So I guess there wouldn't have been an opportunity. So, okay, at number three was Confessing by Frank Ifield, which is all the way from number 23. So, you know, Frank Ifield was also still a big thing. Absolutely. And in fact, I have to give a shout out to one of our loyal listeners, Susan Gagney, who said the last episode we did had a lot of yodeling in it. <laughs> she said, love the yodeling. <laughs> Apologies to anybody that doesn't like yodeling. Yep, so, you know, so this one doesn't have as much yodeling. I got the flu, my voice broke too, and the song came out this way. It turned into a yodel, 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 It turned into a yodel, 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she said it in a positive way, so thank okay. you, Susan. 
She's okay. a very positive way. Thank you, Susan. We love you. She's a fan. <laughs> All right. At number four, uh, if you got to make a fool of somebody. At number eight, for me to you is down. You know, it's time for the Beatles to release their next single. They are busy in the studio recording it during these couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. At number 11, Billy J's Do You Want to Know a Secret? At number 12, Billy Fury with When Will You Say I Love You? At number 27, Devil in Disguise by Elvis Presley. At number 37, Just Like Me by The Hollies. It was written by Earl Carroll and Billy Guy of The Coasters. I do prefer the original by The Coasters, I'll be honest. Yeah, it's hard to top them, that's for sure. That's that's all we'll say, because we've already discussed this before, haven't we? As I say, we're really looking at a lot of songs which just kind of held over from June. I don't know if it's because it's the summer and people aren't quite around listening to music quite as much, or if everybody was on tour and just no time to record new stuff. So we're going to leave what we have out on the charts. At number 40 was How Do You Do It? Jerry and them are still there. At number 41, It's Too Late Now by The Swinging Blue Jeans. And at number 48, the one new song we're going to mention this week, Twist and Shout by Brian Poole and the Tremolos. song we all know and love but this is definitely modeled on both the Isley Brothers version and the Beatles version well it's much more modeled on the Beatles version than it is the original and actually there was another version before the Isley Brothers that was very different Isley Brothers added before voices coming in and But yeah, it's definitely modeled after the versions that uh, we all know and love. So it's very interesting to see this here. Of course, the group also has an interesting connection with the Beatles because Decca ended up signing them (laughs) rather than the Beatles. The infamous January 1st session where supposedly the deal had already been made, but then it's like, no, no, we don't want to bring this group in from Liverpool. And so, you know, there, there was this other group, which they were also very interested in, Brian Poole and the Tremolos, and there they are. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll sign them instead. <laughs> so, 
yeah, that was, you know, a decision. <laughs> <laughs> we could call it that. It was a decision. So this is their single and definitely was very close, shall we say, to the Beatles version. To promote this, Brian Poole and the Tremolos were actually on an episode of Pop Go the Beatles, and it is announced as, with permission. <laughs> so, you know, they knew, they made clear that the Beatles were okay with them. Although, interestingly, I found a quote from Brian Poole who claimed that said, we were doing Twist and Shout on stage before we knew anybody else doing it, and we felt we could have had a hit with it. Unfortunately, we had it in the can for about a year before Decca decided to release it as a single. Take that as you will. With a grain of salt. Yeah, a little bit questionable. I'm sure there were a lot of bands doing Twist and Shout. The other thing about this is the guitar is much more the La Bamba. the Latin style guitar than the Isley brothers or the Beatles would use. Mm -hmm. That's true. And of course, as we've talked about on previous episodes, you know, the Latin sound was still hot at this time. So they may have been trying to capitalize on that trend. So there you go. And I will mention this song and one other are strong influences to Ruddles material. This sounds suspiciously like number one by the Ruddles. Which, I mean, of course, is a takeoff of Twist and Shout, but in arrangement and in the guitar, it's like... Neil was kind of copying this. You know, mm-hmm. it's right out of this version rather than necessarily the Beatles version. Wow. Boy, Neil really did his homework for the Ruddles. He really did. He was so exacting and everything with that parody. And that just shows just how much research he did. What he said was that when he was writing these songs, he just sort of went back into his memory. And, and it may have been that that was the version of Twist and Shout that he kind of remembered. Mm-hmm. Could be. He wasn't necessarily thinking about redoing the Beatles version of Twist and Shout. He just wanted a Twist and Shout-like song. True. And we're going to have another mention of the Ruddles in next week. Next week on the charts, not next week for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so on to the 11th of July, 1963. At number one is I Like It. At number 13 is For Me to You. At number 14 is Billy J's Do You Want to Know a Secret. At number 37 is Adam Face Walking Tall. Walking Tall, just like the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Yep, yep. Very 50s sounding. Exactly. Very country. This was kind of the last gasp of his singles, uh, Adam Face singles on the charts as the Mersey beat was really taking over. Yeah. 
turned out sunny after all. I never heard a sweeter sound than your hello to me. Hey, look at me walking tall. It's not um, really a great song. It's okay. At best, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, not one of his better ones, but one of his last hits on the on the charts. It's sort of a sign of the changing of the guard of pop stars in Britain. At number 38 was Just Like Me by The Hollies, which we had just spoken of. At number 43 was The Cruel Sea by The Dakotas. Martin, go for it. I'd actually never heard this song before researching for this episode, and I'm glad that I did because I really do like this song. It's uh, written by the guitarist uh, Mike Maxfield for the Dakotas, and it's obviously the Dakotas without Billy J. And I love the tune of it, the the actual melody of it, and I also love the production that it. It's got a really nice sound to it, but unlike a lot of the English instrumentals of the time, it doesn't sound like The Shadows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds a little more Mercy Beat. Yeah. And I found out that The Ventures covered this, and I could see that. I could see uh, The Ventures doing this, because it does sound a little like you could do it in a surf rock kind of way. Now, that's interesting, because when it was initially released in the U.S., the U.S. record label actually released it as the Cruel Surf and not the Cruel Sea. Oh! Because the U.S. label were trying to put it out to fit in with the then craze of surf music. That makes sense. Was that in 63 or was that something which came along a little bit later in 64? It didn't say on my thing when it came out. We'll find out, you know, when it when it shows up on the American charts, maybe, if it does. Yeah, Fascinating. It, yeah. Yeah, it was released as The Cruel Surf in America, not as The Cruel Sea. And then eventually they changed it back to calling it The Cruel Sea. Re-released it as The Cruel Sea as well. And who was the producer of this? George Martin. So there you go. It was released in 63. The Cruel Surf was the title when released on Liberty in 1963. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That kind of makes some sense. The surf craze was going on in the U.S. and here you go. This all fits. I can see the Ventures covering this, and I mean, this does have kind of a surf rock bit of a sound to it, twangy guitars, and also I could see this appealing to American audiences, too. Okay. At number 45, one of the men himself, Mr. Chuck Berry with Go, Go, Go. Not one of Chuck's better songs, but, you know, he plays and sings so well on it. Exactly. And you've got to give a man credit. What a lyricist he is. Come on, a guy who can get a rock song on the charts who refers to Errol Gardner and Stan Kenton. Back to my jazz band, Lynn Underwood, mixing on my Jamal and my Johnny B. Good, sneaking Errol Gardner in my sweet 16. Now they tell me Stan Kenton's cutting Maybelline. Oh, baby. He was the man. I, I have to stop myself from calling it Go, Go, Gadget, Go. <laughs> I would expect a gadget in my head when I saw the title. Sorry. Ah, uh, Gen X reference. Love it. <laughs> we won't bring Don Adams into this. 
John Adams was around, though. And if you want to hear about Get Smart, listen to our good friend Ken Womack's Everything Fab Four podcast. He had Barbara Feldon on earlier this year. Oh, that's right. So, Beatle-wise, not only is this a semi-sequel to Johnny Be Good, but he makes reference to a bunch of his own previous work. Yeah, he does. This may not rank among his absolute best, but the lyrics are pretty clever. I mean, he does make reference to his previous work, and as I said, put some other references in there. Also like the bass on this. I couldn't find out who played it, but did it. You know, was really a skilled player. So, I mean, you know, I'm sure John was familiar with the record. It very much kind of reminds me of what John would do in Glass Onion. Yeah, that's very true. Oh, and by the way, Go 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 was the B-side to Come On. There you which, go. Wow. Yep. Come On was the B-side. Well, actually... Or was it the, a double A-side? I think it may have been, because Come On failed to chart in the U.S., top 100 but the other side go 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 eventually peaked at number 38 on the uk singles chart so that's what i found out at number 46 hello josephine by wayne fontana and the Mindbenders. this is the other song which i think kind of heavily influenced neil ennis and the ruddles if you listen to the backing there's a bop 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 hello josephine Granted, Elvis had done that, the Jordanaires had done that, but it sounds suspiciously like the backing of Blue Suede Schubert, you know. <laughs> Bob Schubert, Bob, Bob Schubert, it's <laughs> very similar. <laughs> and this was their first single. Of course, today they're probably best remembered for the Game of Love from 1965. I like the guitar in this, but yeah. boy, those ha-has really got on my nerves. <laughs> y- yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry. Wayne Fontana and the Winebenders fans out there. Yeah, Game of Love is catchy. But yeah, this, yeah, the ha-has. I, I just, yeah. wow. Get, get, get rid of the ha-has and you'd have a really good or a decent uh, Fats Domino cover version. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Now, one of the members of Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders was one 
Eric Stewart. Yep, and uh, of course, we all know uh, Eric Stewart went on to be in 10CC and worked with Paul McCartney. Uh, worked with him quite a bit in the 80s. 10CC was behind Strawberry Studios, and Strawberry Studios was where Paul and Mike would record McGear. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That is correct. And that tasty guitar playing you were on about, that is Eric playing, I believe. It is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. He played, you know, guitar quite a bit on Paul's uh, 80s stuff. And all. Yeah, I do like the guitar in that song. That's really good. Why did they have the ha-has in there? <laughs> the solo was actually recorded by a very young Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page was a session musician. JimmyPage.com lists this session as being his fifth ever session and quite possibly his first recorded solo. Eric Stewart would be really the Denny Lane replacement for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was around from tug of war through to press to play. You can see a fair bit of him in Broad Street. There's one reason to watch Broad Street. <laughs> yeah, that version of So Bad in Broad Street. Two, oh, one, two, three, four. closest we'll get to a live version very true okay and then at number 49 jimmy soul with if you want to be happy i don't know why we're mentioning this other than it's it's a good record and it's one that people remember yeah and it's actually based on uh calypso song from trinidad called ugly woman do you that makes sense because of the lyrics and actually i found out that toward the end of the track you know there's that dialogue Some of that is based on a Bo Diddley song called Say Man. It's a tad misogynist, but other yeah, than that, well. it's, it's, you know, it's a catchy song. <laughs> okay, we, we can say the chatty bit might have influenced Paul when he and Michael did. Uh, Michael, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Oh, there you go. <laughs> be. Michael, we're not going to fight about this, okay? Paul, I think I told you. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Uh, I've heard it all before, Michael. She told me that I'm her forever lover, you know. Don't you remember? Well, after loving me, uh, she said she couldn't love another. Is that what she said? Yeah, she said it. You keep dreaming. The girl is my... No, not really, but <laughs> you can say that. It's a little stretch, but, you know, sure. <laughs> all right, the next week... 18th of July, 1963. Uh, There's actually nothing new on our list here. Just going through quickly. uh, uh, Confessing was still at number one. I Like It was at number two. Devil in Disguise was at number three. Sweets for My Sweet was at number seven. The Brian Poole version of Twist and Shout was all the way up to number 11. 
if you got to make a fool of somebody, was it number 14? For me to you, was it 16? Do you want to know a secret? Was it 18? There are a couple of songs which weren't on the British charts yet. This is their first appearance there, but they're songs which we've already talked about on the American side. I Wonder by Brenda Lee, Tony Bennett's The Good Life, and One Fine Day by The Chiffons. So mm-hmm. that's that numbers 30, 37, and 40, respectively. All right, so we move on to the 25th of July, 1963. Number one was still confessing by Frankie Ifield. He had some staying power. He sure did. Our, our buddy. Uh, Good old Frank. <laughs> yep. At number two was Devil in Disguise. At number three was Sweets for My Sweet by The Searchers. At number five was Brian Poole's Twist and Shout. At number seven was I Like It. At number 15 was From Me to You. At number 16 was If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody. At number 18, Kenny Lynch's You Can Never Stop Me Loving You. At number 19, Do You Want to Know a Secret? At number 28, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, I'll Never Get Over You. An interesting track from an interesting band. This is, to me, such a typical Mersey Beat sound. Intro almost sounds like the ending to Please Please Me, in a way. I mean, you know, when I first heard it, I thought, why does this sound familiar? I mean, it sounds a bit like that. And it also sounds like a song Jerry and the Pacemakers could have recorded. It just sounds like such a typical song of that period. Their deal was Johnny Kidd wore an eye patch. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say that it sounded Mersey Beat because they were really trying to sell themselves as a slightly throwback band. This song in particular really doesn't sound that way. You know, as soon as it starts, I thought, yep, Mersey Beat all the way. Yeah, there's an unfortunate compilation album called The Leather Boys. Which, yeah, that has not aged very well. No. (laughs) It is in reference to 50s leather, not, well, leather as we tend to associate it these days. (laughs) There's still some tasteful uh, little guitar bits in there by Mick Green, which, you know, shows why Paul would use Mick a lot with the uh, covers albums. Oh, yeah, that's right. So the three artists which are featured on there, in addition to Johnny Kidd and Vince Taylor, our good old friend Joe Brown. Look for the CD. That's actually a cheap way to get 10 songs by each of these artists. And that's still out there. And, you know, I, I'd be willing to bet that not all those songs are available on streaming. Wow. What's the, what's the CD called? The Leather Boys. Oh, it's a le- oh that's that's the one. Okay. They, they kept Boys. the, it, it's a 30-song CD. They kept the title of the original compilation album. Mm. But there's 10 songs from each of them on, on that, whereas the original LP only had four from each of them. Ah, gotcha. If you're looking for Joe Brown material, if you're looking for more Johnny Kidd material. Sounds like a good deal, despite the title. <laughs> <laughs> and during this time, George, well, slightly earlier, George would write a letter to Astrid Kirshner and make reference to Johnny Kidd. Quoting that letter, three weeks ago, we're talking about 
basically three weeks after Ringo joined. So September of 1962 was when he wrote this letter. Some boy biffed me in the cavern. Biffed. Biffed. Okay. <laughs> and this was years before Batman would make that word popular. <laughs> before the time. <laughs> Some boy biffed me in the cavern and gave me a black eye. I went to hospital and had a patch put over it. Then Johnny Kidd and I walked across the road, but into the path of a bus, which knocked me down. <laughs> now, I, you know, I don't believe that. I think he's making a Johnny Kidd joke there. Oh, okay. Do you believe it? I hope it's a joke. Well, I mean, obviously, it didn't hurt him too badly if it was real. Something may have happened or they may have almost been hit by a bus. But all right. At number 29, Wipeout by the Surfaris, which we talked about last time on the American charts. Number 39, Come On Home by the Springfields. Come on home. I love her voice on this. Yeah, it really stands out. And of course, we've talked about the Springfields before on this show. And this is Dusty Springfield's uh, band with her brother uh, Tom. They were known as a folk trio. But I thought this was an interesting departure from some of the other tracks we've talked about before from the Springfields. Because the brief instrumental section has more of a rock feel to it than some of their other songs have. So this sounded like it was getting away from the folk sound a little bit more. But yeah, Dusty's voice always stands out. I see this record as kind of the transition into Dusty as we would know her. Yeah, that's a very good description. Ed's copied my name. Oh, well. At number 41, In Summer by Billy Fury. At number 42, we can't say original because, as you said, there was a version of Twist and Shout before, but what is at least nominally the original Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers. Mm -hmm. I love the Isley Brothers. I really do. But I've always preferred the Beatles version. Definitely has more of a gospel sound to it, the way the vocals are arranged. But the original, original version was by a group called the Top Notes, and it was released in 1961. And if you look it up, it's really interesting. It definitely has a bit of a, a Latin feel, but it just sounds kind of flat, even though the Cookies sang backing vocals. King Curtis was one of the players on it, and it was produced by Phil Spector. But it failed to chart, and so then the Asley Brothers covered it and obviously had a big hit with it. It was the Isley Brothers that added the Shake It Up Baby, the ascending notes that the Beatles copied. So really, the Beatles modeled their version after the Isley Brothers, but I've just always preferred the Beatles version. I think they really made it their own. They did not copy the Isleys, but they took a lot of it. I mean, it is a cover in that it is clearly the same version of the same song as opposed to the, the Brian Poole version, which is shameless and, dare I say, ripping off both the Isleys and the Beatles version. Exactly. I mean, the Beatles took elements of what the Isleys did, but then made it their own. 
Okay, at number 43, It's Too Late Now by the Swinging Blue Jeans. At number 44, So Much in Love by the Times, we get to mention John Lennon's jukebox jury appearance again. Another of those songs that he ranked a miss because he ranked everything a miss on that show. <laughs> he was not in a good mood that day. No, I like what he said about it. <laughs> so the song is So Much in Love by the Times, and John's comments, uh, I thought it was Rolf Harris at first. And then I I thought, no, it's the Drifters. And then I thought, you know, it's nobody. Oh. Ooh, shots fired. My God, I thought the Ralph Harris comment was bad enough, but boy, the kicker at the end. Oh. I don't think it's a hit. Continue, John. The host, David Jacobs, you didn't like it? John then replies, well, it was all right. You know, the style was all right but it wasn't good enough in that idiom. Then John made one of those faces that John is known for. Idiom? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> oh, John. <laughs> At number 46, Just Like Me by the Hollies, and we'll end side A the same way we started it. At number 50, Come On by the Rolling Stones. And I'll tell you, this is just fascinating to listen to because it just sounds so different from what we're used to. Although, when the harmonica comes in, that sounds like the Stones, that blues kind of sound. But the rest of it, when you compare it to Chuck Berry's version, it just sounds a little staid for the Stones. I mean, it just doesn't sound like what you would expect. But it's early. It's their first single. But it's really just, for me, the harmonica that makes you think, okay, this is what you'd expect. Yeah, and that's Brian on harmonica at that point, not Mick. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. The Stones would do a Rice Krispies commercial, and they would have a song behind it. It's not Come On, but it kind of sounds like Come On. <laughs> Interesting. It's just worth noting. It's that top pop of the morning, Rice Krispies! Wake up in the morning, there's a snap around the place. Wake up in the morning, there's a crackle in your face. Wake up in the morning, there's a pop that really says Rice Krispies to you and you and you. For on the milk and listen to the stand that says it's nice. For on the milk and listen to the crackle of that rice. Get up in the morning to the pop that says it's rice. Hear them talking, Chris. Rice Krispies! The Stones were a little bit more like the monkeys at this point. In the, they were all too happy to go out and both play and appear in a commercial. Hmm. Wow. Now, interestingly, I found out, because I, I wondered, did they ever, because as we talked about at the top of the show, uh, the Stones themselves were not big fans of, of this, and they refused to play it a lot of times in their even their early shows. But apparently during a June 6, 2013 uh, concert in Toronto, part of their 50 and counting tour, Mick uh, Jagger sang a few bars of this uh, with Charlie Watts drumming along after mentioning that Come On had been released exactly 50 years ago, the day after that night. And it was the first time that they had performed that song in any way during Rolling Stones concert since 1965. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, really when you start reading about the Stones, what most of the time you see is that Not Fade Away was the single that came early on. This song has kind of been lost. 
Wow. They did not fade away live quite a lot. They liked it better, I guess. Yeah. yeah they must. Well, and again, I can kind of see why, because, you know, it's not one of my favorites. I mean, it's, it's okay, but I can see that I want to be your man. I can see how that did better than this. I think this didn't really show off mixed vocals as well. To me, it just doesn't show what they could do, you know, what made them distinctive. The Lennon-McCartney name on the label didn't hurt. You're right. (laughs) So, all right, that is the British charts. That is side A. So we will be back soon with the American charts. See you soon. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records. Remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that. They must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.